Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As an undergraduate, I attended a Christian college, and then in grad school, I attended an anti-Christian college, so it all balanced out. One of the things I was really pleased about when I moved from the Christian academic environment to the non-Christian is that we didn't have to go to chapel services anymore. Because as an undergraduate, every week I had to go to chapel, or at least I was supposed to go to chapel. And because I didn't always do that, every semester there would be a reckoning where I would have to justify the fact that I had not attended as many chapels as were expected of me. Now, I was exposed to hundreds of chapel messages. All I remember now are the jokes, or at least the attempts at humor, because as you know from uh, your own experience of, of pastoral humor, not everything that is intended to be funny objectively is funny. But I remember uh, a missionary who came, who was a graduate of our alma mater, and he told this wonderful story about he, how he'd met his wife at college in this romantic first date that they had had. They'd gone to the movies, gone to dinner, and then he'd brought her back to the dorm and helped her climb over the spiked fence into the girls' dormitory. And we all loved that because we'd all been there before, having to scamper over the the spiked fence after curfew. That was hilarious. This was a Southern Baptist school. So I remember the guy who told the story of Noah and put a hilarious line into... uh, Noah's mouth, when God seeks to send him to the Assyrians, to Nineveh, uh, the Southern Baptist Noah says, but Lord, I'm the head of the home missions board. So he's not responsible. If you were Southern Baptist, you'd be rolling in the aisles right now. (laughs) But I remember one thing people would say again and again and again and again. It was one of those attempts to uh, diffuse uh, diffuse a, a common criticism of the church, and it had to do with hypocrisy. You know, everybody who, who has stopped going to church, maybe you grew up in church, but now you just can't stand to go back to church. One of the big reasons for that is that it's so full of hypocrites. Churches are just full of hypocrites. There's so many hypocrites in the church. There's so many hypocrites in this room. There's at least one on the stage. And as a result of this, people don't want to have to deal with it. And so I heard maybe 50 times, Somebody say something like this, it's better to go to church with hypocrites than to go to hell with them. (laughs) Yeah, we all laughed. It's better to go to church with hypocrites than to go to hell with them. Basically, choose the lesser of two evils. Sure, yes, admittedly, churches are full of hypocrites, full of people who are all dressed up in their Sunday best and pretending like they lead good and righteous lives. But if you actually knew them, you'd realize that's not true. But you know what? Suck it up. Surround yourself with hypocrites, knowing it's better to put up with hypocrisy now than for all eternity to be punished with everlasting fire surrounded by hypocrites. You don't want to be the person who is being, you know, tormented by devils complaining. There are so many hypocrites down here. So many hypocrites. Better to put up with them in this life. Here's the thing, though. When I look at Paul's attitude towards hypocrisy, it's not funny. It's not even an attempt at humor. When Paul transitions from the the sins of the Gentiles 
in Romans 1 and now turns his attention to the sins of the Jews in Romans 2. He's not taking a sort of laissez-faire, lesser of two evils attitude. He is not saying, you guys aren't perfect, but at least you're not like them. In fact, just the opposite takes place. There is an intensification of the outrage. Like the rhetoric that Paul uses is more inflamed, not less, when he jumps from talking about the sins of the world to the sins of the church. And it suggests a very different attitude towards hypocrisy, a far less tolerant attitude towards hypocrisy than than we would generally have. Paul's message to us is a pretty harsh one. He says, you look down your nose at sinners, but you're a self-righteous hypocrite. You mistake God's patience for indifference. And you need the same Jesus they need. We as hypocrites need to hear this message. Because Paul says that just like them, we are without excuse. He says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. Remember in chapter 1, verse 20, because of God's revelation of himself in all creation, we are all without excuse. Here, this idea is reiterated. A reminder, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. Not just everyone who sins the sins that are mentioned, but everyone who judges when they hear that description being made. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you remember the story of David after his sin with Bathsheba? He essentially orchestrates the murder of her husband so that he can be with the woman he wants to be with and kind of make good on his transgression. Like he indulged in a little adultery. It resulted in her being with child. Not a problem. Just commit a little murder and everything can go away. Only it can't because the prophet Nathan comes to David to confront him. But remember how he does it. He doesn't just walk in and say, hey, King David, I'm talking to you. You know what you did. Instead, he tells him a story. He describes the sin of another person. That man who, having a proliferation of sheep, still has to steal from the guy who has one so that he can put on a feast. When David hears that description of the sins of another, he immediately knows what the righteous judge would say. That man should be punished. That man should be condemned. And the prophet Nathan, speaking good King James English, says, thou art the man. You are the man. The person in the story who you have just passed judgment on is you. Paul's doing the same thing here. Paul is doing exactly the same thing here. He set us up for it. He gave us a description of the corruption and the sin of the Gentiles the sins of the world, something we could cheer on as he's describing their depravity. And now suddenly he wheels around on us. And it turns out that we too are condemned. When you hear the list of sins in Romans 1, if you react to that and think, yeah, they deserve to be punished, you're not wrong. 
They do. What Paul is saying is, so do you. So do you. You're one of them, too. You are condemned because you do the same things. You do what they do. You're guilty of those same things. You may belong to a different tribe, but you are guilty of the same actions. Your tribal affiliation will not save you. You understand the, the, the way of thinking that Paul is engaging with. It seems obvious to us. Sure, if you condemn that sin in another person and you're guilty of the same thing, then why wouldn't you assume that you were going to be condemned? Well, the reason why they wouldn't assume is because they weren't Gentiles. They were Jews. They were part of the righteous tribe. Now, they weren't perfect. Nobody believed that they were perfectly keeping the law. When people answer to Jesus and the rich young ruler is confronted by Jesus and Jesus says, oh, good, all you have to do is keep the law. And he says, oh, I've kept it from my youth. We read that and think this guy's deluding himself. But he doesn't mean he's perfect. He just means he observes the law. Like he observes the sort of cultural markers that separate Jews from Gentiles. He's not one of them. He's one of us. And because he's one of us, he won't be judged the way they will be judged. You get the idea. It's not a a measure of perfection. It's just a measure of identity, of belonging. I will be saved because I'm one of the tribe that will be saved. They are unrighteous. Just look at how they live. We are righteous because we're Jews, because we're God's people. The problem is, it is only righteousness that will save you. It's only actual righteousness that will save you, not identity, not just belonging to the right organization or tribe or church. It is actual righteousness that saves, and you're not righteous, Paul is saying. You're just self-righteous. You're not actually righteous. You are guilty of exactly the things that you condemn. You do those things. We know, he says in verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know, in other words, that the penalty of sin is death. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? God's judgment will be according to what you've done. And what you've done is unrighteous. The fact that you pretend otherwise, that just makes you a hypocrite. That just shows that you don't practice what you preach. That you look down your nose on other people, at other people. You condemn, you judge how bad they are, how wicked their sins are, but you're guilty of the same things. Whenever we talk about sin, inevitably, someone will come along and quote some Bible to us. Judge not lest ye be judged, right? Christian starts rattling off things that are wrong, things that you shouldn't do. Some helpful person will come along quoting to you what is probably the only Bible verse that they know by heart. Judge not, lest ye be judged. That's from Matthew 7, verse 1. And then typically, the way we will respond to that is by saying, oh yeah, but, but you actually do have to judge. You really do have to be able to judge between right and wrong which is true, but let's not pass over 
what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 too quickly. When Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, just because that can be a flippant response to calling sin, sin, let's not ignore what it is that Jesus is actually saying. He says in the next verse, Matthew 7, 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. As a side note, I have a lot of friends uh, who would describe themselves as, as post-evangelical, and this idea of judging people is one of the things that led them there, that they, uh, they felt that they were raised in a church that was very judgmental, and that they were always encouraged to be judging other people, and it seemed to flatly contradict the words that Jesus said here. The problem is, what I observe from the outside, admittedly, in those lives is, is not that they've become less judgmental people. It's that they've changed what it is that they're judgmental about, if that makes sense. Sometimes we congratulate ourselves that we're not the judgmental ones. Like, we're not the ones who are always, you know, raining down hellfire and brimstone on people. It just depends on which people you're talking about. Right? Those of us who pat ourselves on the back for being less judgmental can actually be very judgmental to other people. Right? We just judge differently. We used to harshly judge the liberals. Now we have harshly judge the conservatives. But we're still judging. We're still doing the thing that Jesus talks about. Same rage, different target. Same result, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness exists in every corner of the church, every branch of humanity. Don't pat yourself on the back that you've managed to elude it by disassociating yourself with the more obviously judgmental quadrants of the church. This is a problem for all of us. And what Paul is doing here is essentially taking the the words of Jesus and putting them into action. When Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged, because with the same judgment that you judge, you will be judged. Paul is saying, and this is what it feels like when what Jesus said is put into action. This is what it feels like to be judged by the same judgment that you've judged with. As we work through Romans 1, we feel our distance from the sins that are enumerated. We feel we're we're beyond that. We're better than that. We're not like that. In our minds, we form a judgment, and now it comes back to us, and we find that we, too, will be judged according to the same standard, and we, too, are guilty. We, too, deserve punishment. So, yeah, in the face of sin, people doing what they ought not to do, we judge. Is it wrong to judge? Not wrong. Just keep in mind. With the same standard you judge, you will be judged. So one lesson you could take away from this, and it would be a wrong one, is that if I just stop judging, I won't be judged. If I just stop judging, then I can get away with anything because at least I haven't condemned anyone else. And that's common. It sounds ridiculous, but I think a lot of us, the most tolerant of us, the most open-minded of us, are open-minded precisely because we're aware of the sin that we ourselves harbor. And we don't want to be guilty of hypocrisy. How can I 
be tough on the sins of others because I would be being tough on my own sins. If I'm going to give myself a pass, then I have to give everybody a pass. Paul's not saying it's okay to give yourself a pass. Don't worry about your sin. He's saying you will be judged. You will not escape judgment. I think the beauty is, though, that if you were conscious of your own sin, you were conscious of your own faults, that you could never treat the faults of others with anything less than compassion. Not that you would excuse them, not that you would say, oh, that sin's not sin, but knowing your own faults, you could never treat the faults of others with anything less than compassion. It's because you are guilty, too. And only the one without guilt can truly judge. Only the one without guilt can judge righteously. It doesn't mean we're wrong when we judge despite our guilt. It just means we're judging ourselves too. The problem is for hypocrites, because the judgment doesn't come immediately, because the punishment doesn't follow the crime immediately, we imagine things about God that are not true. You do something that you shouldn't do, and you don't die for it. You're not punished. Occasionally, you do something you shouldn't do, and you seem to be rewarded for it. You get away with it. And we tell ourselves, this makes sense, because God loves me and would never, never let any sort of punishment befall me. That's what Paul is speaking about in verse 4 when he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We make an excuse. We say, God is kind and loving. He will not condemn. Because he is so loving, he will not judge me. Quick as we are to judge the wrongdoing of other people, to see it for what it is, when it comes to our own wrongdoing, it's very easy to imagine that God will turn a blind eye, that it just doesn't bother him that much. He's bothered by other people's sins, but my sins, he understands. He sympathizes with me in my affliction. Jesus knows my trials and my struggles. He knows I can't be perfect. I can't not do what I do. He gets it. He loves me too much not to give me a pass. It's as if we would say to other people, God looks at my sin with love, although he looks upon yours with wrath. But clearly that's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. If anything, there is more frustration There is more passion, there is more anger directed at hypocrisy than at anything else that has been listed so far. We shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that because God hasn't punished me yet, because he's allowed me to thrive despite the sin that I revel in, it must mean that I'm going to get away with it. His patience has a purpose, Paul says. His patience is meant to lead you to repentance. He's giving you time to realize. He's giving you time to turn. He's being gracious towards you in your sin. But don't think that means it's going to go away. 
that it doesn't matter. The idea of a loving God is a comfort to sinners who recognize their own sinfulness. When you recognize your own sinfulness, when you come to terms with what it means to be a sinner, then the idea that God loves as perfectly as he does is a profound comfort because it means that when he promises to save, you can trust those promises. It means God really will show to you the kindness that he has offered to those who repent of their sin. Strangely enough, though, the idea of a loving God is a millstone to sinners who do not see their own sinfulness. To sinners who do not see their own sinfulness, the idea that God is loving is actually a stumbling block because it leads us to believe that he will not call us to account. It leads us to believe that there will be no judgment, at least for us. And so sometimes, ironically, this contemplation of the love of God can backfire on us. It can be an excuse for us not to repent and to continue in sin, which is why it's important not only to believe in the love of God, but to believe in all of the things God has revealed about himself, including his justice. Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Judgment is coming for all, for Jew and Gentile alike. And the refusal to repent is like a, a, a valve that's been closed. It results in a buildup, but a buildup of wrath. Like more and more wrath is piling up against us. You don't repent because you think you're one of the good ones. You keep judging others. You keep doing the things that you yourself condemn. You know that it's wrong, but you imagine that you'll get a pass. You're not escaping judgment, Paul says. You're making it worse. You're making the, 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 the payment higher. Some of you are wise and you know how to get by in the world. I'm not one of those people, and I often naively blunder into bad situations. And uh, I did this not too long ago when I hired a a lawyer to settle a contract thing that I was involved in. And uh, what I didn't appreciate was that the lawyer wasn't my friend. And so when I contacted him and we emailed back and forth and, and had little conversations and I would query things and, and that sort of, what I didn't think about was that every single interaction, that every little email, I would get a bill for. And when I finally got the bill, trust me, there's nothing worse than getting like a bill for the thing you asked for and then like a whole other bill for, for like the questions that you emailed along the way. Those of you who've employed lawyers know what I'm talking about. You got to remember, it's like the, the taxi cab the meter is running. Now, that's a mundane example, but, but something similar is happening in the text here. There's a meter that's always running. There's wrath that is being built up. The fact that you don't feel it now, the fact that, that the judgment isn't today shouldn't lead you to believe it's not something you need to worry about because there is a debt and it will have to be reckoned with. It is building up the pressure is building because of that lack of repentance. We make it worse because we never expected there to be a cost. Paul is saying there is. 
that judgment is coming. He describes that judgment in verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Eternal life is the reward for righteousness. But for the unrighteous, there will be wrath. The problem is, the people that he's speaking to, the hypocrites, they hear those words of judgment, and they feel comforted by them. Yeah, of course, we knew that. For the righteous, there will be rewards. And for the unrighteous, there will be wrath. And they are the unrighteous, and we are the righteous. Paul says, no, you're a them, not an us. The difference isn't between Jew and Gentile. The difference is between righteous and unrighteous, and both Jew and Gentile are on the unrighteous side of the equation. Judgment is coming for all sinners. Sinners versus the perfect. Where are we on that spectrum? Honestly, are you patiently doing well? Are you seeking after glory, honor, and immortality? If you can answer yes to those questions, all you're really doing is proving your own hypocrisy. If you really imagine that you're one of the righteous, you really imagine that on that day of judgment, you don't need a better defense than the things you've done. You're deceiving yourself. Self-righteous are blind because they think they're worthy of reward. The profligate sinner of Romans 1, there's a blindness there. There's a reason why people live the way they do, thinking there will be no judgment. Paul's point is to say the same blindness to the consequences that they have, you have it too. You're just not having as much fun. Don't feel good. Don't think you've escaped. Turns out you need the same Jesus they need. What they need, you need, because what they're guilty of, you're guilty of. Some of you know your Bibles really well, and some of you don't. This may be new to you. Maybe you wouldn't even know where to turn in Scripture if you were looking for a description of the gospel. So let me give you something. If you ever find yourself looking for a passage that really summarizes the gospel, you can do a lot worse than just turning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is always a good place to go. The whole book of Ephesians is fantastic. But Ephesians 2 gives you a wonderful statement of the gospel. You'll find similar things in Romans if we jumped way ahead, but we're not going to jump ahead in Romans. We're going to jump over to Ephesians and just listen to these words that Paul speaks. This is in a very similar vein to what he's saying in Romans 1. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, you're also under condemnation. Paul, speaking to the church, like you know that you too were children of wrath. There was no us versus them. We were together in our unrighteousness. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Christians, sometimes we have a habit of speaking of grace in the past tense. Sometimes we talk about the gospel of grace as a thing that was the solution to a problem that we used to have. I needed the gospel at a certain point in time, and then I found it. And now my job as a Christian is to share it with other people so that you too can solve the problem that you have, which I used to have as well. I was once a sinner like you, and now I'm a sort of ambassador of the gospel. There's some truth in that but it could also mislead us a little bit, get us to wander a little far from the foot of the cross when it comes to a consciousness of our own needs. Even those of us who believe in Christ continue to need him, continue to need his grace. We need the same Jesus they need. We need the same gospel preached to us that they need. A lot of people in a lot of churches are trying to share a grace with others that they themselves have never found have never experienced, because there's so much emphasis that we place on the need for evangelism to go out and talk about the gospel. Sometimes we're sending people out to talk about a thing that they've actually never come to terms with themselves and have no understanding of. Many people share grace because they think it's one of the good works they need to do in order to be saved. But Paul says... We need the same Jesus thing. He talks about the condition in which you once walked. You were dead in trespasses. You were them. You were like them. The good news is that there is life after hypocrisy. As bad as you were, you were not without hope. As dead as you were, you were not beyond life. Because Jesus has the power to bring the dead back to life. There is life after hypocrisy, but only by grace. Only by grace. Not moralism, not self-righteousness, but by grace. We sang last week in Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Even the righteous, their salvation comes from the Lord, not from themselves, not from their works, from the Lord. The righteous shall live by faith, Paul quotes, Romans 1.17. They shall live by faith, not by works. There's a great story about one of my favorite uh, Elizabethan poets, Sir Philip Sidney. Sir Philip Sidney was one of these kind of Renaissance men, literally a Renaissance man, who wrote poetry and also was a great uh, knight and valiant warrior, He went over to the Netherlands, as a lot of English gentlemen did, to help them fight for their independence against the Spanish. But Sir Philip Sidney, unfortunately, in the Battle of Zutphen, was wounded. He was shot 
in the thigh. And there's this wonderful story that's told about him. He's wounded. He's laying with all the wounded men. They're passing around the flask of water to relieve their pain. And as the flask of water comes to him, he sees a man who is in worse shape and he passes the water to that guy. And he says, thy need is greater than mine. Thy need is greater than mine. He died. That tends to happen when you do these noble sentiments. Uh, But it's kind of, I don't know, inspiring. The self-sacrifice of it all. Your need is greater than mine. Your necessity is greater than mine. When it comes to your attitude about sin, though, if this is the way you see it, you will die. If you can take the gospel and pass it on to another and say, thy need is greater than mine, you will die. It isn't true. Your need is great. Your need is profound. You need the grace as much as anyone. That's the message that Paul sends to us hypocrites. Don't think you're too good for this. Don't think you don't need it. Don't think with the kind of life you've led, you don't need this grace. You're not like them. You are, Paul says. You need this too. What we should see by now, as we've worked through Romans, through chapter 1 and the first eight verses of chapter 2, is truly, as we've said before, we are all in this together as sinners. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, we all share the same problem, and that means we all share the same need. All that's happened at the beginning of chapter 2 is to that long list of sin that we saw last time, Paul has added another sin. He brought up our total a little bit. He's added hypocrisy. And the fact that this one comes last should tell us how grave a sin it is. We all need Jesus, whether we are unrighteous or self-righteous or both. The good news is Jesus is here. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.